Arab League nations are welcoming back to their annual summit a longtime pariah, Syrian President Bashar Assad. Assad has provided over a civil war that has left hundreds of thousands of people dead and more than 10 million displaced. Today is Friday, May 19th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also making an appearance at the summit, Ukraine's president, who's looking for Arab League support in Ukraine's war with Russia. The state of North Carolina has passed a ban on most abortions after the 12-week mark. Some see a connection between the ban and attitudes toward another population. The vicious and overwhelming attacks against LGBTQ people and our families, this is inextricably linked to the abortion ban. These stories also aren't inspired by a trip to space. Coming up, it's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Debt ceiling talks are now on hold, dashing hopes for an agreement by this weekend to lift the nation's borrowing limit and avoid a default. The lead negotiator for House Republicans, Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana, announced the pause as he emerged from a meeting with White House negotiators this morning. The House passed a strong bill that has great savings in it, and it's responsible, and it puts us on a path to get served. And some people are willing to have reasonable conversations about how you can actually move forward and do the right thing, then we're not going to sit here and talk to ourselves. House Republicans are insisting on federal spending cuts to accompany an increase in the debt limit. Democrats oppose linking the two. President Biden is at the G7 summit in Japan. He's opting to cut short his overseas trip to return to the U.S. to address the debt ceiling impasse as the country moves closer to the point of default projected to be within weeks. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to personally address G7 leaders this weekend. NPR's Aya Batrawi says a leader also attended a gathering of Arab leaders in Saudi Arabia. Zelensky told leaders at the Arab League summit that some of them were turning a blind eye to Russia's aggressions. He pressed them to push back against Russia's invasion of his country, which he said also impacted Ukrainian Muslims. Arab states have largely refused to pick sides in the war, keeping ties with both Russia and Ukraine, which are major wheat suppliers. The summit also drew attention because of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's return after a nearly 12-year-long suspension due to the country's civil war. Having failed to topple him, most Arab states have been slowly rebuilding ties with Syria, despite resistance from Qatar and Kuwait and opposition from the U.S. Ayo Batrawi, NPR News, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Football legend Jim Brown has died. He was 87 years old. Brown was a star running back at Syracuse University and with the Cleveland Browns in the 1950s and 60s. He retired from football at age 30 to pursue a career in acting. He was also active in a civil rights movement. His wife Monique announced his death in an Instagram post this afternoon. The longtime CEO of Morgan Stanley says he plans to step down in the next 12 months. James Gorman broke the news about his departure to shareholders today. NPR's David Gura. Among the man and the one woman who run the big banks, there hasn't been much turnover recently. James Gorman has led Morgan Stanley for more than a decade. He became its chief executive in 2010. Well, since then, the firm has grown. Its market cap is now around $140 billion, and it acquired E-Trade and Eaton Vance. Before Gorman became Morgan Stanley's CEO, he oversaw its wealth management division, which has become a larger part of the overall business, and that's helped the firm weather a recent downturn in investment banking. Gorman says the bank's board is looking closely at three internal candidates for the top job. That's David Gura reporting. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge says a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified military documents online will remain in custody pending his trial. The ruling came within the last half hour in federal court in Worcester. Prosecutors argued Jack Teixeira was a flight risk. They also claimed he may have an additional classified documents than what he's accused of already posting. His lawyers wanted the 21-year-old released to his father. Teixeira was arrested last month in Dighton. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins says she will resign by the end of the day today. Two federal investigations found that she violated ethics laws by attending a political fundraiser and using her office to influence last year's race for Suffolk County DA. Congressman and Worcester Democrat Jim McGovern says resigning is the right thing for Rollins to do. If you have broken the rules in a way that is deemed significant, uh, if you have performed tasks that your bosses in the Justice Department think are inappropriate, I think the right thing to do is to resign and to move on. Rollins' attorney issued a statement this week saying most of the allegations amount to minor process fouls. Food benefits are being extended for Massachusetts K-12 students who are eligible for a free or reduced school lunch. The state announced today that it has received federal approval to continue the program until the end of July. It was supposed to end in May. The state's Health and Human Services Secretary says the benefits are twofold. They promote food security for nearly 500,000 students and their families while also supporting local grocery stores, farmers, and their employees. 69 degrees now in the Boston area. Still pretty nice out there, but a lot of clouds moving in for the evening and overnight tonight. Tonight should be in the mid-50s. Then tomorrow, wet. Could have showers and thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon, warming to the mid-60s again. Sunday starting up gray, then winding up being a sunny day, warmer too, about the mid-70s. This is WBUR. It's 406. WBUR supporters include BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Saudi Arabia flexed some serious diplomatic muscle today. It invited Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose country is at war with Russia, and Syria's President Bashar al-Assad, whose government is propped up by Russia, to join a meeting of regional Arab leaders. We're joined now by NPR international correspondent Aya Batrawi, who is in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. That's where the Arab League summit took place. Hey, Aya. Hi. So let's start with Zelensky. We saw that, you know, the U.S. and other countries today ramped up sanctions against Russia. What do you think Zelensky is trying to achieve by traveling to Saudi Arabia now and speaking with Arab leaders? Well, Elsa, when he spoke to Arab leaders today, he knew that his audience is made up of countries that maintain ties with Russia, either economically or militarily. And none of them have sanctioned Russia. So he had some pointed words for them. Even if there are people here at the summit who have a different view on the war, on on our land, calling it a conflict, I'm sure that we can all be united in saving people from the cages of Russian prisons. Unfortunately, there are some in the world and here among you who turn a blind eye to those cages and illegal annexations. 
So what's that turning away look like? Mm -hmm. Well, there's Saudi Arabia, the host, which has an oil pact with Russia that's helped both of their economies. There's Egypt, which has longstanding military ties that go all the way back to the days of the Soviet Union. And there's the United Arab Emirates, which has benefited enormously from Russians who have been flocking to Dubai with their money and their wealth to avoid sanctions back home. Well, let's turn to Syria. I mean, why did the Arab League states even allow Syria back into the group now? It's not like Assad has made any real political concessions, right? No, he hasn't. And that's why the U.S. has publicly criticized any steps that legitimize the regime. And this is a regime that gassed, bombed, and tortured hundreds of thousands of people over the course of the civil war. So not all countries are rushing to rebuild ties with Syria. But for countries like the United Arab Emirates, which has been rebuilding Syria after February's earthquakes and 12 years of civil war, Having a weak and fractured country the size of Syria poses a danger to everyone. The country's become a narco state, smuggling huge quantities of drugs into Arab Gulf countries. Meanwhile, there are millions of Syrian refugees across the region and a generation of young Syrians that have only ever known war. So there's a real pragmatic desire to see Syria get back on its feet again. Well, what about Saudi Arabia and all of this? Like, what is it trying to get out of hosting both of these leaders, Zelensky and Assad, at the same summit? So to answer that, I spoke with Mohammed al-Yahya in Jeddah today. He's a Saudi scholar and a senior fellow at the Harvard Belfer Center. And he says there's a feeling in the Middle East that the U.S. is pulling away and does not have a clear strategy in the region, whether that's in Sudan or in Iran. And so he says Arab states are filling that void by looking at their own interests. There's a tendency uh, in Washington to paint any efforts to look after one's own interests as a pivot away from the United States and towards another uh, actor. Uh, you know, you can call it a balancing act, what happened today, but I don't think that's the point. So I think what he's trying to say is that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is signaling to Washington and Moscow that he can stabilize Syria and support Ukraine. And the underlying message here is that while the U.S. is still the world's superpower, it's not an unrivaled power anymore. That is NPR's Aya Batrawi in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Aya. Thanks, Elsa. President Biden signaled he's considering some changes to federal safety net programs and talks about a deal to avoid a default on the country's debt. That's making some Democrats on Capitol Hill worried, and they're pushing a backup plan to get around having to reach any compromise with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Progressive Democrats are keeping a close eye on closed-door talks between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy's negotiators. I'm watchful. I'm always watchful. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal chairs the Progressive Caucus. Many on the left were alarmed by comments Biden made before departing for his trip to the G7, where he suggested he was entertaining the possibility of toughening requirements for federal safety net programs like food stamps. I voted years ago for the work requirements that exist. But it's possible there could be a few others, but not anything of any consequence. Here's Jayapal. His remarks are a little bit confusing. What I've said in the past is, uh, you know, I understand he voted for work requirements in in 1996 and some other things in 86 with the crime bill. But uh, we didn't elect the Joe Biden of 1986 and 1996. We elected the Joe Biden of 2020. Florida freshman Maxwell Frost says he wants the president to hold the line. I have trust in the president on this, but I do want to make sure that him and the administration know that we don't want to see any cuts through these essential programs like SNAP. Republicans are pushing provisions targeting adults without dependents who receive federal assistance, saying they have to find work. Speaker McCarthy argues this policy boosts both people looking for jobs and employers. But Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern called the GOP plan immoral 
and told the Biden White House to reject it. The people that I've talked to in the White House have been reassuring from my point of view. I haven't talked directly to the president about this. You know, he's overseas right now. But make no mistake, what they are proposing would adversely impact the most vulnerable people in this country. And he says he'll break with the president if he has to. I can't support a bill that screws poor people, and this would screw poor people. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the president has a record of hammering out bipartisan deals, but he suggested the other person at the negotiating table is the problem. I have confidence and faith in the president in these negotiations, but I do not have faith in Speaker McCarthy and right-wing Republican House members. Markey and other Democrats are pushing for the president to use the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which says the validity of the country's public debt cannot be questioned, and the Treasury can pay its bills, even if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley says it's better to turn to the 14th Amendment than agree to GOP demands. But we're saying to the president, if the bottom line is that the only deal to be had that McCarthy will sign on to is one in which ordinary families are savaged, that is unacceptable. The president says using the 14th Amendment is unprecedented, and it's something he could consider in the future, but that talks are the way to avoid a crisis. Democratic Congressman Richard Neal from Massachusetts says it's important to not jump to any conclusions about where a final debt ceiling bill will end up. Negotiating can be conversational and hoping that you might draw a bite based upon something you've said, which means it conceivably is not in the final package. So who knows? But I do think that giving the president some latitude here is really important. But with 13 days until the country could default, Democrats are only growing more worried. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. A private mission to the International Space Station is set to take flight this weekend. Four astronauts will spend about a week at the orbiting lab conducting experiments, talking with students back here on Earth, and focusing on art. As WMFE's Brendan Byrne reports, there's a long history of art and space. When John Schaffner found out he was going to space, he wanted part of his mission to focus on children, asking them specifically a simple question. What would it be like? When we live in space, in your mind, as a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old today, what does that look like to you? Schaffner remembers his inspiration, a painting he made almost six decades ago of Jiminy's Ed White, the first American to conduct a spacewalk. I'd be like a million dollars. This is the greatest After that flight, Schaffner, as an eight-year-old, helped start a young astronauts club. That early dream was put on hold. He went on to become an investor, pilot, and race car driver. But now at age 67, Schaffner will become an astronaut. He purchased a seat on a SpaceX capsule from Houston-based company Axiom Space. And he'll join former NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson and two Saudi Arabian astronauts. And some of the art created by young students is coming along, too. We're going to show the some of the selected uh, art entries and poetry on the space station during our flight. The contest is the latest in a long history of art in space. Robert Perlman, founder of CollectSpace.com, traces the first piece of orbital art to Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov on a 1965 mission. He carried with him some colored pencils and he sketched the horizon um, and the different colors that he saw during a sunrise and sunset as he circled the Earth. And others soon followed. A sculpture called Cosmic Dancer sent to the Russian station Mir in the early 1990s danced in weightlessness. Shuttle astronaut Nicole Stott brought a set of watercolors when she went to space. 
To start painting, she'd squirt out some water from a drink bag, which would float around as a tiny ball. What was so cool, because of microgravity, surface tension behaves a little bit differently, which is why you get that ball of water to begin with. And you could take your brush and just touch it, you know, touch it to the ball of water. And all of a sudden, that whole ball of water was now a ball of water on the end of your brush. Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield brought the art of music to orbit, packing his acoustic guitar and recording a rendition of David Bowie's Space Oddity. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. For others, it wasn't until they returned to Earth that artistic inspiration would strike. Apollo moonwalker Alan Bean was so taken by what he saw, he picked up a brush and painted those lunar landscapes. Speaking to NPR in 2016 from his home studio in Houston, he reflected on being one of the few artists to visit another world. Someday I hope that that painting right there would be in a museum on the moon. Someday, thousand years from now, there will be art museums on the moon. Maybe one of these paintings will be there. Who knows? For John Schaffner, he hopes focusing his upcoming mission on art will inspire students to think big. It's all about imagination. So we want young people to, in, you know, to take up the vision of themselves and imagine themselves in the role that they really, really see. So hopefully this is a good kickoff and others will follow. And after his upcoming trip to space, Schaffner says he may dust off his art brushes once more, a half century after his painting, a copy of which he's bringing with him started it all. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks fell on this final day of the work week. The Dow lost about three-tenths of a percent. S&P fell more than one-tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq dropped nearly a quarter of a percent. The state's unemployment rate is once again below the national average. The Department of Labor says the rate dipped to 3.3 percent last month. That's a tenth of a percentage point below the national average. Massachusetts companies added more than 5,000 jobs in April. The biggest gains were in education and health services. This is WBUR. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and new work by Boston Ballet Principal Kristen Fentroy at Citizens Bank Opera House tonight only, bostonballet.org, and Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. Coming to WBUR City Space Tuesday, May 30th, Chef Sisters Margaret and Irene Lee talk about their new cookbook that focuses on cooking flexibly and fighting food waste. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. 
Clouds are moving in for the evening and for the overnight tonight. Should be on the mild side tonight in the mid-50s. Then tomorrow should be wet. Could have showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, warming to the mid-60s again. For Sunday, we should have sunny skies for the bulk of the day. Temperatures warming to the mid-70s. 69 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Rami Abusabi and Tamar Malki are the musical duo Bedouin. For more than a decade, the two of them have been making music together. And now they are out with their first album called Temple of Dreams. That is the song Tijuana, off their latest project. Tamara says the group's name is a nod to the nomadic tribes of the Middle East. I'm from Jordan, from Amman, Jordan. I was born there. Rami is from Egypt. He was born in, in the U.S., but that's that's where he's originally from. And in the desert or the land between the two countries is where the Bedouins actually live. And in a way, what we do, traveling grouping around a fire and playing uh, hypnotic, repetitive music. So so we felt that kind of was a perfect name that could describe what we're about to do. Land of broken dreams. He says their current sound is very much shaped by Middle Eastern music, but it wasn't always that way. Maybe because we grew up around it, it wasn't something that we were very interested in. But for me, for example, I couldn't escape it and it wasn't a choice to listen to it so I kind of started appreciating it a little bit later you don't feel any interest or connection to it until you step away from it and you start appreciating the differences or certain elements about it or certain aspects of it and that's I think what happened with us is that after a certain point musically we started realizing how we can incorporate everything we listened to growing up and bring it in our own way to the dance floor. And that evolution, that changing relationship or reconnection with Middle Eastern music that you experienced as you got some distance from it, is that an evolution that we can hear in your music over the years? This is Rami. I mean, I would say so, yeah. You can clearly hear the evolution in our music to the point where you might not hear any Middle Eastern influence so much in the more recent songs. But I think what we learned from Middle Eastern music or from these ancient instruments with quarter tones and so on and so forth, there's a lot that still carries through technically, but but maybe stylistically you wouldn't really you know, attribute it to being Middle Eastern. Interesting. Well, can we talk about the most recent music? Like, I want to get into this new album, Temple of Dreams. (music) 
it's your first album since you've been performing together since what, 2012, right? Yeah, 2013, 2012, something like that. Yes. And can I just ask, like, why do you think you both waited, what, almost a, a dozen years to make an album together? Ah, uh, this is Tamar. So it's not like we waited. To be honest with you, we always thought that if we're going to make an album, it's not going to be like an album that we want to just go under the radar, never detected and just, okay, we did an album, you know? We wanted to really do something significant. So that's why we really took our time. And whenever we wrote a song or made a song that we felt this could be for the album, we actually just kept it on the side. And we decided that, you know, whenever we're ready, or we feel right. like it's the moment to put out an album, we're going to do it. Oh, cool. Like saving money under a mattress or something. You're just piling it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, kind of. Well, as you were suggesting a little earlier, I mean, the music on this album, it's pretty, it's different from your other music in the sense that it's not solely dance music, right? Like, why did you want to go for a different sound on this project in particular? As musicians, we express ourselves, you know, in many different ways. So not every day when you express yourself as a musician does that expression end up being something that works for a party or a dance floor or that we can use in our DJ set. But those expressions can often be very powerful or still very important to you. And those are the expressions that end up on the album. It's the best way I can describe it. It's 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 a very honest musical expression. But um, after we had created these specific songs, we'd, we'd like Tamer said, put them on the shelf and waiting for that day when 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 we have enough for a full album, and they would you know uh, support each other the songs uh, as an album. I would love for you to tell me the story of one particular song on this album where you were writing it, you were making it, and then you were like, oh, but we can't we can't use it right now. We have to put it on that <laughs> shelf and wait for the album. Is there one song that you were so pent up to release yep. into the universe and you you had to wait? Which one was it? It's an easy one. It's was Wash Away. Yeah. Wash Away was the first song that we wrote and we were like, okay, this has to be part of an album if we ever release it. And that kind of somewhat set the tone for the album in a way, I believe. And also that set the tone for the whole idea that we would like this album to be more of a listening experience rather than, you know, a bunch of club tracks that are seven minutes long each. But what is it about that specific track? I think we hadn't understood what the song was before it was made. And, you know, it actually takes time. But after years of going back and listening to the song, you kind of realize, you know, how special it is, really. And this specific track does show our Middle Eastern influence as well as our western influence maybe that's also why it kind of sums up who we are very well also it was it was one of the first so 
it's sort of your first baby, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's your favorite yeah. kid. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of setting up my you know? next thought, my next question beautifully. Does it feel like the stakes are higher when you're releasing an album compared to all the other music you've made in the past? Because, I mean, you're using words like my baby, you know? <laughs> yeah. is it, is it, does it feel kind of vulnerable to be releasing this out into the world right now? Oh, yeah. To some level, it is like that, you know. It's like you, you work so hard on something, and and it becomes very special to you. And then you're about to put it out to the world, and you have no idea or no clue how you know people are going to react to it or how is it going to feel yeah. out there with people. And it's, I guess, that's kind of like a beautiful risk that's part of this art process in a way. Tamar Malki and Rami Absabi of the musical duo Bedouin. Their new album is called Temple of Dreams. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. We enjoyed as well. Thank you very much for having us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Boston Celtics and Miami Heat play tonight at the Garden in Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Heat lead the series one game to none. Tip-off tonight is at 8.30. And later tonight in San Diego, the Red Sox play the Padres. First pitch is slated for 9.40 Eastern Time. This is 90.9 WBUR. Partly cloudy tonight. Then for tomorrow, lots of rain, thunderstorms. Sunny skies, though, on Sunday. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now and Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden was skeptical of the new rules forcing airlines to treat people better. I travel a ton being a stand-up comic, and um, I have platinum status with the airlines, and they treat me horribly. I don't know what they're doing to Group 5. I'm Peter Sagal. Your first-class ticket to this week's Wait, Wait comes with a gourmet meal, assuming you're a gourmet cook. Join us for a staycation with the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, talks to avoid an economic disaster are at a standstill once again after Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told reporters it's time to pause negotiations on raising the debt ceiling. Talks were ongoing even after President Biden left for the G7 Economic Summit in Japan earlier this week. But McCarthy says Republicans need to see more movement from the White House. I really felt we were at the location where I could see the path. The White House is just... Look, we can't be spending more money next year. We have to spend less than we spent the year before. It's pretty easy. 
The White House says a deal is still possible, but there are real differences between the parties. President Biden says he understands the Speaker's need for concessions to bring House Republicans along, but Democrats also have needs. Without a deal, the U.S. could face a crippling default as soon as early June. The Pentagon says it overestimated the value of U.S. weapons sent to Ukraine by $3 billion. NPR's Greg Myrie tells us that means the Defense Department can send Ukraine even more reinforcements against Russian invaders without having to ask Congress for more money. The Pentagon calls this an accounting error caused by calculating the replacement cost of weapons provided to Ukraine rather than their current book value, which is lower. Officials say the discrepancy was discovered earlier this year as part of the regular oversight process. As a result, the U.S. could send additional military assistance to Ukraine based on funding already authorized by Congress. The Pentagon has provided around $30 billion in aid to Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion last year. The latest development comes as Ukraine seeks more weapons for a major offensive expected to begin soon. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street to end the week. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council is meeting this afternoon to try to come up with a new voter redistricting map. Last year, the council approved a map, but a federal judge sent it back, saying it potentially violated the Voting Rights Act. The judge warned a legal challenge to the map could have proved race played too heavy a hand in the process. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. The map that councillors now must amend split up an area of South Dorchester known as the Boot. It's mostly populated by white, more conservative people who tend to vote in high numbers. Former city councilor Mike Ross tells WBUR's Radio Boston the area is key to any new redistricting map. Any map that that removes that boot, in my opinion, is DOA. And to get it to get this done, I believe they're going to need to keep that boot. The council's Irish Catholic, more conservative faction wants to keep the boot in one district. More progressive, mostly non-white members of the council backed the earlier map that split it up. The deadline for a new map is a week from Tuesday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Somerville residents have until the end of the day tomorrow to contribute to the city's first-ever participatory budgeting process. Somerville Mayor Katyana Ballantyne is asking residents 12 years old and up for ideas on how to invest $1 million in city improvement projects. Ideas that are not eligible for consideration include staff hiring and any proposal that requires recurring expenses or target specific vendors. Suggestions can be submitted online, over the phone, or in person. And Amtrak's Acela trips between Boston and Washington, D.C. just got a little more appetizing, at least for first-class passengers. Amtrak says today it's partnering with James Beard award-winning restaurateur Stephen Starr. They'll launch a premium Acela first-class dining menu on the Northeast Corridor trains. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, breezy temperatures in the mid-50s tonight. And for tomorrow... Rainy, windy, temperatures in the mid-60s, sunshine though on Sunday, all the way up to the mid-70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. North Carolina has been a haven for people in the South to get abortions. For the last year, that access has been shrinking. And this week, the Republican-controlled state legislature ensured that a ban on abortions after 12 weeks will become law in North Carolina on July 1st. When Democratic Governor Roy Cooper vetoed the bill, lawmakers overrode it. Ash Williams has been on the front lines of these changes. He's an abortion doula, which means he provides support to patients throughout the process of ending a pregnancy. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me, Ari. Will you just begin by telling us about what the work of an abortion doula involves, what you actually do? Absolutely. So an abortion doula is a person who provides emotional, informational, and when giving consent, physical support before, during, and after abortion. Because I'm a transgender person, it's really important for me to be able to offer gender expansive care for the people that I serve. I'm also funding people's abortions as well. So anything from letting people know what clinics are okay to go to, where they can actually receive care, to explaining sedation options for them. And then I also want to make sure that people always feel like they have someone to talk to. You've talked in the past about having had two abortions yourself, and that was before Roe versus Wade was overturned. Do you think about how your experience would have been different if you'd gotten pregnant now? So Ari, when I was ending a pregnancy two times, um, I was before the 12-week gestating mark. A lot of people uh, aren't as lucky or they don't find out as early as I found out. And also, I want to say that out of all the abortions that I funded and the clients that I've served this year, about half of them are at or beyond that 12-week mark. Hmm. You've spoken to NPR a couple of times over the last year as the laws in North Carolina have changed and the window for people to get an abortion has shrunk. How has that changed your job and the experience of the people you work with who are ending their pregnancies? I have a lot more work to do now. I'm also making sure that my work extends beyond the state of North Carolina because so many people are trying to access care here from outside of the state. So I imagine that you are both working with people who want to come to North Carolina to end a pregnancy and working with people in states that have more liberal abortion laws when people in North Carolina want to end a pregnancy outside of the the time period that your state allows. Exactly. Before Roe, there were existing networks of support, and we are seeing these networks become more expansive and providing holistic care. And so I am going to work with my partners and other organizers to get people out of the state of North Carolina if that is something that's needed. I also, Ari, am increasing access to information about self-managing abortion. Through medicine, through methapristone, for example. Yes. I think that's something that's going to be uh, increasingly important. And so one of the things that I've done is kind of beefed up my resource bank so that I can help people uh, get the pills in an expeditious way. 
You are not only an abortion doula, you train other abortion doulas. That's right. Why do you do this work? Why is it important to you? I do this work because there are other trans people who have abortions. I'm a black trans person. I've had two abortions. Um, for me, the vicious and overwhelming attacks against LGBTQ and trans people and our families this is inextricably linked to the abortion bans. Reproductive justice teaches us that the key to controlling entire communities is through controlling bodies. And so I believe that because these attacks are coordinated, so too must our resistance. I am really kind of sitting at this intersection of trans justice and abortion access. And I believe that if we focus in on this intersection, we will make sure that people of all genders have increased access to all types of reproductive care. That's Ash Williams, an abortion doula in North Carolina. Thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Ari. When inflation started getting bad, there were concerns that workers would create a wage price spiral by asking for pay raises. Sarah Gonzalez with our Planet Money podcast says there are now concerns about a totally different kind of spiral. There is a formula for what causes inflation, and it's very simple. It is costs plus corporate profits. That's how you get inflation. If costs increase for a company because workers want higher wages or because the cost of raw materials go up, you can get inflation. If corporate profits go up, you can get inflation. Now, you may remember a lot of economists last year saying that corporations or, or corporate greed was not driving inflation. But corporate profits could be a driver of inflation. It's right there in the inflation formula, says Andrew Glover at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. So you're an economist at the Fed? Yes. Kind of fancy. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but it's Kansas City, so it's, it's, uh, it's a less fancy city. Andrew at the not-quite-fancy Kansas City Fed wanted to assign how much costs contributed to inflation at the beginning of inflation and how much profits contributed. To do this, he had to look at basically every type of good or service sold in the U.S. So, you know, McDonald's would be in here, Walmart would be in here, Ford would be in here. Pepsi, yeah. Coca-Cola, yeah. ketchup makers, whatever. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Normally, Andrew says profits contribute less than a third to inflation. He found that in 2021, corporate profits could account for about double that, nearly 60 percent of inflation, meaning it was not costs driving inflation. It was corporate profits. Now, some economists hear this and think this is proof that companies were just using inflation as an excuse to gouge customers. Andrew does not think this. He thinks companies likely raised prices, not because their costs went up in 2021, because they did not really, but because they were anticipating that their costs would go up a lot in 2022. And by the way, costs did end up going up in 2022, although companies still made record profits. So they over-anticipated how much costs would go up. They, like, overshot it? Uh, how to see it? Um... It is possible that firms, by anticipating higher costs, contributed to the inflationary pressures that actually led to higher costs. Yeah, corporations anticipating higher inflation could have been why we got higher inflation. And Andrew says this could spiral. If we were to get in a situation where not only in 2021 did firms expect higher inflation, but in 2022, they expected it. 2023, they expected it. Then we very well could 
end up in a world where profits are always a major contributing force to inflation. This is why one of the Fed's goals is to keep inflation expectations anchored around 2%. One of the outcomes of that would be that we don't see a profit price spiral. A profit price spiral or a price price spiral. This is a new phrase. Usually the worry around inflation is a wage price spiral where workers keep asking for pay raises and corporations keep raising prices to afford the raises and it spirals. A price price spiral is when corporations raise prices by more than the increase in their costs in a way that perpetuates inflation. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Li Haoshi, whose stage name is House, cracked the joke at a club in Beijing. Video of it is... Stand-up comedy is hard, especially in China. A comedian there is under investigation, and the company he works with was hit with a steep fine after he did a bit that included part of an army slogan. Chinese authorities thought it was not funny. NPR's John Ruich reports. Li Haoshi, whose stage name is House, cracked the joke at a club in Beijing. Video of it is making the rounds on social media. The joke goes like this. Li says he moved to Shanghai recently and adopted a pair of wild dogs from the countryside. In the city, he says they're like apex predators. One day, the dogs bolted after a squirrel, like cannonballs, he says. That made him think of eight words. <laughs> Fine style of work capable of winning battles. That line is part of a People's Liberation Army slogan, coined by none other than Chinese leader Xi Jinping a decade ago. It's widely deployed to this day, like here, where troops are seen in a video shouting those words as they march in double time in a parade. The fallout from the bombed joke has been swift. Lee canceled upcoming performances and expressed his remorse and regret online. He said the joke was unsuitable and had brought about bad feelings, and he said he would reflect deeply on the transgression. But that wasn't enough. This week, Beijing authorities fined the company that booked Lee more than $2 million. It also barred the troupe indefinitely from future performances in the Chinese capital. Shanghai, where the company's based, quickly followed suit. This video from the People's Daily, a Communist Party newspaper, lays into Li Haoshi for crossing a line. Culture creators, it says, shouldn't only think about commercial interests and not their social responsibilities. This case should be an example for others that only high-quality spiritual content should be provided to the masses. Beijing police say they've opened an investigation into Li. In recent years, China has criminalized slander against martyrs, heroes, and the Chinese military. If Li's found guilty, he may end up doing prison time. And that's no joke. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. Mm. 
It's that time of year when high school seniors are filing into auditoriums and gyms all across the country to get their diplomas. But the class of 2023 is a little different. Your last four years have been anything but normal. They started high school before the pandemic, left to navigate an unexpected reality in the years to come. At least we can one-up our parents in the stories we're telling our kids. Oh, you climb mountains and swim across a river to go to school? I had to show up to school in a hazmat suit and dodge coughs and sneezes just to take a math test in second period. Hear that story on today's episode of our daily podcast, Consider This, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, the political implications of Senator Dianne Feinstein's health that's still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Senior Medicare Patrol. Detect, protect, and report health care errors, fraud, and abuse. Be an engaged health care consumer. If you suspect fraud, visit medicareoutreach.org. The Worcester Art Museum, with frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, worcesterart.org. And Brookline Booksmith, author Abraham Verghese, discusses his novel The Covenant of Water on May 24th. Details at brooklinebooksmith.com. Some clouds and in and out sunshine for the remainder of the day today. Then tonight, partly cloudy, breezy, relatively mild temperatures in the mid 50s. For tomorrow, lots of rain, thunderstorms, especially in the afternoon, highs in the mid 60s. Sunshine, though, on Sunday, moving up to the mid 70s. 69 degrees in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices, stanhopeframers.com. And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996, tax deductions, and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. Marty Stewart believes country music can be a road into the heart of America. The road is my office. A nice way to live a musical life is to report on what you see. That's a troubadour's job. The Country Music Hall of Famer sings in the spirit of classic country and talks about his new album, That Conversation, plus all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. If you buy clothing made in the USA, there's a good chance it comes from downtown Los Angeles. But L.A. is in the middle of a severe housing crisis, and elected leaders want to put thousands of new homes in L.A.'s fashion district, the very place those clothes are made. David Wagner of LAS News reports on concerns that the fashion district and its factories will not survive the city's downtown housing boom. A few floors above the streets of downtown L.A., sewing machines are humming as workers stitch together dresses for a small L.A. brand called Ocean and Maine. Founder Mary Price points out the carefully sewn French seams on a silk caftan. 
You don't see any raw edge. It's really clean. It's a highly skilled move, especially on a fabric that's as delicate and expensive as silk. It may come as a surprise, but a recent industry analysis found that L.A. factories like this are responsible for more than 80 percent of all sales of clothing cut and sewn in America. It's a world many L.A. visitors never get to see. But Price can look out the window and spot garment factories in all directions. That's an apparel building. If you looked out the studio on the other side, there's three more apparel buildings. So and it's floor to ceiling of people doing exactly what we're doing. L.A. City Council recently passed a new 20-year development plan for downtown L.A. It aims to create 100,000 new homes, in part by allowing housing and manufacturing hubs like the Fashion District. People look at that and go, oh, that'd be a cool loft space. Well, you're displacing a whole industry by looking at it as an expensive high-end loft. Decades ago, downtown L.A. was plagued with abandoned storefronts and empty apartments. But in the last 20 years, its residential population doubled as renters poured into converted office buildings and new high-rises. Roberto Vasquez wants this transformation to continue in the fashion district. We just haven't created enough housing. The city of Los Angeles is in a housing crisis. Vasquez is an architect with Omgivning, a firm that specializes in turning underused buildings into housing. He envisions a fashion district where people live in top floors while ground floor factories continue to churn out clothing. There's plenty of opportunity to satisfy everyone's needs as far as let's not displace the garment workers, let's build new housing. But some property owners say it's not that simple. We want housing. Everybody wants housing. Everybody wants to build, but it's got to make sense. Mark Chadoff owns the California Flower Mall, a fashion district property his family ran as a textile factory for decades. I had to switch from textile to floral because there was no textile business. That business has been dying, unfortunately, for a long time. Now, Chadoff wants to build hundreds of apartments above the flower market. But garment workers successfully pushed the city to require manufacturing space in future fashion district housing developments. Chadoff says those rules could scuttle plans for new housing. I've watched the plan evolve and then completely be decimated. From his apartment overlooking downtown, Francisco Mancia says he's glad he and his fellow workers won those concessions. Not just for me, but for a new generation of garment workers. For 20 years, Mancia has outfitted garments with buttons and button holes. But lately, he's been losing hours. L.A.'s apparel industry faces stiff competition from cheap fast fashion made overseas. Fashion has been at the heart of this district for many years, and it's sad to look at something that once flowered disappearing. But garment workers are not always treated well in L.A. A recent U.S. Labor Department investigation found that some have been paid as little as $1.58 per hour. Mancia knows L.A. needs more housing, but he doubts his family will be able to afford any of the new housing coming to the fashion district. For NPR News, I'm David Wagner in Los Angeles. Filmmakers have been crafting coming-of-age movies for years about teens struggling with peer pressure or parental expectations or just coming to terms with adult feelings. Critic Bob Mondello says the teen brothers in Stay Awake have an extra hurdle, and it's a big one. Rural Virginia, we first see Ethan as he's arriving home from high school. Ma, 
He listens for a moment, walks into the kitchen, and shuts off the water that's running in the sink. Then he heads to the bowling alley, and at the counter, he just looks at older brother Derek, who almost seems to have been expecting him, and who ducks into the manager's office. Hey, Les, I gotta cut out. And they swing into action. Mom's overdosed on prescription drugs. Again. And they know the drill. Gotta keep her conscious on the drive to the hospital. Hey, stay no, awake, Ma, listen to us. Those raindrops are falling on my head. They keep falling. This is easy. You know this. Ma? Raindrops are falling on my head. Come on, what's that one? Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kids. There we go. All right, next one. Come on, uh, let's go. Everybody's when they get to the emergency room, supporting Mom between them, they are still on familiar ground, straight into a room with Mom greeting the nurses, who barely look up. Hey, babies. Get things going here. Their work now done, the boys fall asleep on chairs in their mother's hospital room, and the next morning, Mom wakes and rises to cover them with her blanket. Then she takes them out for breakfast as if nothing much has happened. And in a sense, nothing much has. Ethan and Derek are used to parenting their mother, putting their lives on hold to care for her. But they're reaching an inflection point. Ethan's been accepted at an Ivy League school on a full scholarship several states away. I can't believe it. My boy, the first in our family to go to college? This is, I'm just so proud of you. Thanks. Do you know what you want to study? You want to be a lawyer? A doctor? Doctors. Who wants to be an English major, Ma? Because the world needs more unemployed writers. Not all English majors end up broke. I'll be fine. And honey, you should just do what you want to do. Easier said than done. If Ethan leaves, Derek could be stuck working at the bowling alley forever. He's made it clear he can't see leaving their mom. We agreed, though. You know, you go pursue acting when I head to college, right? She needs to try rehab again. Most films about addiction focus on the addict, the heroin-addled hero in Train Spotting, say, or the alcohol-fueled barflies in The Lost Weekend and Days of Wine and Roses. But Stay Awake concentrates on the collateral damage done, not to mom, but to her sons. We need to figure something out. Like I haven't been trying for years. Then let me try. If we don't figure this out, we're going to be stuck here. Writer-director Jamie Sisley is expanding on a short film he made eight years ago, but also on his own life. He said in interviews that he and his brother were this sort of caretaker, and that the experience helped him come to terms with addiction as an illness. I've blown it, haven't I? I mean, I'm an awful mother. That's more her take than the films, which spreads the blame, a doctor who kept prescribing expensive treatment centers, and lets Chrissy Metz bring empathy to the character. I want to be a good mom who goes to PTA meetings and makes good meals and gives great relationship advice. But every single time that I see them, I'm just reminded that I have failed. Wyatt Olaf's Ethan, eager to spread his wings, and Finn Argus as his laid-back brother are appealing figures, easy to imagine in a more conventional coming-of-age flick, or maybe writing an unconventional one, called Stay Awake. I'm Bob Mandela. I'm a ghost to you, you're a ghost to me, birds of you, You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Workday, 
an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Next Level Church in New Hampshire grew quickly and died almost as fast with questions about its charismatic pastor. That story, along with Wait, Wait at 10 o'clock, listen again tomorrow to 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Longtime U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein has been dealing with health problems that have kept her off Capitol Hill and limited the agenda of Senate Democrats. Senator Feinstein came to the Senate with goals, and she's unfortunately undermining her own reason for being in the Senate by not stepping aside. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Japan is hosting the G7 summit in Hiroshima. It's the first city to suffer a nuclear attack, and Japan's using the summit to call for the abolition of nuclear weapons. And a TV writer who created The Wire weighs in on the Writers Guild of America strike, which is now in its third week. We're having the same exact fight as in 2007. Technology is different, but the fight has to be the same. It's going to be a long fight. I think this is going to go on a while. Also ahead, the violin bow that snapped at just the wrong time. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A group of Democratic senators is urging President Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment to avoid defaulting on the nation's debt. But NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden for now is continuing to hold bipartisan talks with House Republicans ahead of a critical default deadline. The Treasury Department once again warned on Thursday that without an agreement, the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills by as early as June 1st. Minnesota Democratic Senator Tina Smith tells NPR that President Biden should act unilaterally to meet a break-the-glass emergency. If the choice we have is between default and the president um, using the clause in the 14th Amendment, which says that the validity of public debt shall not be questioned, we believe strongly, I believe strongly, that he should use that 14th Amendment authority to avoid the disaster of default. Biden has said that he would consider using the 14th Amendment, but warned that that it would not resolve the current stalemate.
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A Washington, D.C. police lieutenant has been arrested on charges. He lied about leaking confidential information to former Proud Boys National Chairman Enrique Terrio. Terrio was recently convicted of seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. An indictment released today alleging Officer Shane Lamond obstructed an investigation after some members of far-right extremist group destroyed a Black Lives Matter banner in the nation's capital. In informing Tario there was a warrant for his arrest. Tario was not present at the Capitol on January 6. One of pro football's greatest players has died, Hall of Famer Jim Brown. He was 87. Brown was a dominant force in the NFL during his career with the Cleveland Browns in the 50s and 60s. He was also an accomplished actor and civil rights activist. NPR's Tom Goldman has this remembrance. Jim Brown inspired awe with the numbers he put up in nine NFL seasons, including an average of more than 100 yards gained in every game, the only runner to do that in NFL history. He also never missed a game. Brown was a talented four-sport athlete in college, but ultimately chose football, he said in 2000, because it was the ultimate challenge. It will test every aspect of your manhood. Do I have it, you know? And I had it, so I'm glad I had the opportunity to prove it in that arena. After retiring suddenly at the age of 30, Brown established himself as a movie actor. He also was a lifelong crusader for civil rights through black economic empowerment. Brown was not without flaws. He had a decades-long history of violent episodes with women. Tom Goldman, NPR News. Federal Reserve Board Chairman Jerome Powell seems to be indicating the Fed might be ready to pause its string of short-term interest rate hikes when it meets next month. Powell made his remarks at a Fed conference in Washington today. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 109 points. The Nasdaq fell 30 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Massachusetts Air National Guardsman will stay behind bars until his trial on espionage charges. A federal judge in Worcester handed down the decision late this afternoon. Prosecutors argued that Jack Teixeira was a flight risk and that he may have more classified intelligence documents than what he's accused of posting. His lawyers wanted the 21-year-old released to his father. Teixeira was arrested last month at his family's home in Dighton. He's facing multiple charges charges under the Espionage Act and up to 25 years in prison if he's convicted. A federal judge is giving the state of New Hampshire one year to end the practice of holding psychiatric patients in emergency rooms without the patient's consent. The ruling comes several months after the judge declared the practice unconstitutional. The judge also ruled the state can only hold psychiatric patients in emergency rooms for up to six hours before they transfer them to a facility for treatment. Today is Endangered Species Day. It's to spotlight how we can help species that are threatened, and Massachusetts has a fair share of them. Among them, endangered timber rattlesnakes, critically endangered bog turtles in the Berkshires, and an orchid so rare its only known location in Bristol County is being kept a secret. A Berkshire's land steward for the Nature Conservancy, Rennie Wendell, says it's not too late to save the species. Our environment is still relatively healthy. We still have time to fix the things that have gone wrong, and we have fixed the things that have gone wrong in the past. Turkeys have made a giant comeback. We've brought whooping crane and California condors from the brink of extinction back. So yes, I think there is reason to be optimistic. Wendell says don't get bummed out. If you look at the ecosystem, there are more things that are right than wrong. The city of Medford is expanding its blue bike system. This week, it set up the bike sharing stations at Hormel Stadium and Harris Park. The next will be installed at Haines Square. That'll give Medford seven blue bike stations. 
In the forecast, 67 degrees now, windy out there, but dry and still bright. Should have partly cloudy skies falling to the mid-50s. And then for the first half of the weekend, should be kind of crummy, unless you like being rained on. Showers and thunderstorms tomorrow late afternoon, highs about 66. On Sunday, mostly sunny skies, moving all the way up to the mid-70s. This is WBUR. It's 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. California Democrat Dianne Feinstein has been back at work in the Senate for about a week. The 89-year-old had been out for months because of a serious shingles infection. And in her week back here in Washington, questions about her fitness to serve have only intensified. If Feinstein can't meet the demands of her job, that jeopardizes the Democratic agenda in Congress, especially confirming judges. Georgetown Law Professor Caroline Fredrickson spent years working on Capitol Hill for Senate Democrats. She worked on a number of judicial nominations for Democrats and served on President Biden's Supreme Court Commission. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ari. I'm glad to be with you. It's never comfortable to talk about someone's health. And Senator Feinstein's office has only released a little bit of information about her condition. But over the last week, reports have observed what seems like confusion and frailty. To begin, as someone who spent a lot of time working on Capitol Hill, why would you argue that Senator Feinstein's health in this case is news? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, from the point of view of those of us who are Democrats um, or who care about civil rights and the rule of law, we need every vote uh, in the Senate, particularly right now for judicial nominations, which is one of the few areas where the Republicans cannot filibuster, but also the very important debates over the debt limit, uh, where her vote might be absolutely essential to make sure that our government doesn't default on its debt. And has she missed votes in the week that she has been back? She missed a lot of votes while she was away. Um, And that meant that there were delays in these very important uh, judicial nominations, including uh, the vote on Nancy Abudu, who was just confirmed to the 11th Circuit, who will be the first um, Black woman to serve on that court and is a phenomenal civil rights lawyer. That took way longer than it needed to, as well as uh, other votes on judicial nominations that have just um, been in the queue waiting for Dianne Feinstein to come back. So beyond judicial confirmations, you mentioned the debt ceiling. What are the implications for the business of the Senate if Dianne Feinstein is impaired? You know, it's it's fraught at the best of times because of uh, a couple of the members of the Senate who caucus with the Democrats but are not necessarily always um, dependable for really critical votes. Um, And so when there's uh, yet another one that uh, you can't depend on, it puts everything in play. Could you give us some insight into the conversation happening among your former colleagues right now? What do Senate staffers think about this situation? Well, you know, it's really sensitive. Um, You know, Senator Feinstein has had an incredible service. She works hard and she's uh, absolutely dedicated her her life to um, being a good public servant and senator. But on the other hand, I think Senator Feinstein, you know, also came to the Senate with ideals and with goals. And she's unfortunately undermining her own uh, reason for being in the Senate by not stepping aside. The senator's defenders will sometimes say that men in the Senate did not get as much criticism in similar situations. I mean, Strom Thurmond was still a senator when he turned 100. What do you make of that argument? You know, I think it maybe just speaks to the fact that there have been so few women in the Senate. 
and we were, we're now able to have this conversation. And unfortunately, she's the one at that age. Um, you know, I observed Strom Thurmond when he was in the Senate. I observed Claiborne Pell when he was in the Senate. Um, for somebody like Claiborne Pell, I mean, it was painful to watch him in his final years in the Senate because he really wasn't able to represent the people of his state and he wasn't able to live up to the brilliance that he'd shown in his Senate career. I, you know, I'm one who's very sensitive to gender. I don't think this is a case where that's um, at issue. I think it's really about why are they in the Senate? And I think the senators represent us. They represent the people. And so when somebody ceases to be effective in that role or even competent, they should step aside. And that's true whether they're male or female. And definitely these calls should have been more forceful for other senators in the past. Caroline Fredrickson is a visiting law professor at Georgetown University. She worked on Capitol Hill and advocates for Democratic judicial appointments. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. It was great being with you. President Biden and the leaders of the G7 group of industrialized nations kicked off a three-day summit in Hiroshima. That was the first city to suffer a nuclear attack. Japan is using the symbolism of a venue to unite the G7 leaders on a range of issues, including working for a world without nuclear weapons. But as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Hiroshima, it faces some awkward limitations. Every August 6th, Hiroshima marks the anniversary of the city's nuclear bombing. The sound of a bell inscribed with the characters for peace resonates through a park. The G7 leaders began the summit with a visit to the park. They met an atomic bomb survivor, or in Japanese, Hibaksha, who told them that humanity must never again experience a nuclear disaster. On that day in 1945, some residents feared the city could come under attack. So six-year-old Hiroshi Harada's parents arranged to evacuate him from the city. When the bomb dropped, he was at Hiroshima Station waiting for a train. I was exposed to the bomb about a mile from ground zero. Of course, there were heat rays and the blast. However, I happened to be in the shadow of the station building. So, miraculously, I survived. Harada remembers running from the station. Fires were everywhere. People's bodies were in a tragic situation, with their heads split in two, their skin melted and flowing. In a flash, they became charred corpses. Probably, one can't imagine a more tragic situation on this earth. Harada has devoted himself to ridding the world of nuclear weapons and educating younger generations about the weapons in humanity. He was previously the director of the museum, which the G7 leaders visited. But, says Harada, The museum exhibit does not tell the whole story. If we were to reproduce the situation of that time, no one, including myself, would be able to enter the museum. Hiroshima is represented in Japan's parliament by Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. In a speech last year in New York, he pledged to use the Hiroshima G7 summit to push for the elimination of nuclear weapons. He noted that Russia's threat to use nuclear weapons in its war against Ukraine has raised concerns about a possible nuclear catastrophe. I cannot but admit that the path to a world without nuclear weapons has become even harder. Nevertheless, giving up is not an option. I believe that we must take every realistic measure towards a world without nuclear weapons, step by step, however difficult the path may be. 
But even while calling for the elimination of nuclear weapons, Japan depends on U.S. nukes for protection. Many Shibakusha has been betrayed by own government many, many times. Keiko Nakamura is an associate professor at the Nagasaki University Research Center for Nuclear Weapons Abolition. They have been so distressed, disappointed, but still have a hope that one day the Japanese government will listen to the real voice of the Hibakusha and change their course. The G7 is expected to restate previous calls for nuclear-armed nations to recommit to not using their nukes and to reducing their nuclear weapons stockpiles. That's not new, argues Toby Dalton, co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Nor is Japan's nuclear dilemma, which has existed basically since the end of World War II. That need to rely on nuclear weapons for its security, even as it also has the kind of moral imperative to argue for disarmament based on its experience of of having received nuclear damage. I think that's what's baked into the Japanese orientation to nuclear policy. This dilemma leaves the Hibakusha no choice but to keep on hammering home their anti-nuclear message. Their average age is 85 years old. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Hiroshima, Japan. Concert violinist Stefan Jakiv performed last Thursday with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra in England. It was the UK premiere of Glier's Violin Concerto. But all did not go according to plan. I you know, walked out on stage in the evening with my violin and my bow, um, and I've been playing on this bow for about 20 years. I got it in my late teens, um, and... I've played, you know, well over a thousand concerts on it over the course of 20 years and countless hours of daily practice um, and never really had any problems with it. So I just went on stage, started playing, and about, I would say maybe like a quarter or a third of the way into the piece, I just heard this loud snap. And the bow basically disintegrated in my hand, snapped in two. Jakiv quickly swapped a bow with the concertmaster, the leading violinist of the orchestra. And probably the music stopped for about three seconds, and I grabbed the new bow and just picked up right where I left off. But it wasn't exactly smooth sailing from that point on, because this new bow that I borrowed from the concertmaster felt totally different from my bow. You know, the weight is different, the balance is different, um, how it feels in the hand is different, the kind of the nature of the grip is different. So that was very sort of disconcerting. Not to mention the price of the bow. This bow, if it were in perfect condition, and if I wanted to buy it today, um, would probably be between 30 and 35,000 US dollars. A lot of money, Jakiv admits, but the history. This bow is a bow made in the 1800s by a very well-known bow maker at the time named Francois Nicolas Voirin. Kind of the greatest violins are made in Italy in the 1700s, like Stradivarius, and the greatest bows were made in France in, in the 1800s. But don't worry, the bow has been repaired, and Jacquie will use it tomorrow in a performance in New York. I'm told that it's a, you know, the repair is secure, and, you know, on stage I can't think about being sort of ginger with it. I have to just, just do my thing. And so... I'm hoping it'll hold up. We'll see. This will be sort of its first, my first performance with it post-repair, um, and hopefully things will go without a hitch. Fingers crossed. We'll keep our fingers crossed for you too, Stefan.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us this afternoon and every afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, unless Congress and the White House reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling, Americans from veterans to Social Security recipients to would-be homebuyers could suffer. That's ahead in about 15 minutes. And coming up next, the writer of The Wire on how being a TV writer has changed over the years, as have writers' wages. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. Stocks fell on this final day of the trading week. The Dow lost about three-tenths of a percent. S&P fell more than one-tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq dropped nearly a quarter of a percent. The food delivery service GoPuff will no longer be allowed to sell alcohol in Massachusetts. State alcohol regulators revoked the company's license yesterday. The Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission says GoPuff repeatedly sold and delivered alcohol to underage customers, many of them college students in Boston. GoPuff is reported to strongly disagree with the commission's move and will appeal. It's 519. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Still a pretty beautiful day out there. Should have a dry and mild night. Temperatures in the mid-50s tonight. Tomorrow, wet. Showers, thunderstorms in the afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-60s could rise to about 75 degrees on Sunday with lots of sunshine. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Every industry changes with new technology. And changes to the TV industry are one reason writers are on strike right now. So to get some perspective on what the evolution looks like and what impact this has had on writers, David Simon is here in the studio with us. He created The Wire and has overseen production of many TV series. He's also a member of the Writers Guild of America's Negotiating Committee. Thanks for coming in to offer your view. Thanks for having me. So you started writing for TV nearly 30 years ago. What are the specific things that you think made your life more comfortable than writers starting today? Oh, well, for one thing, I grew up with a mentor. Uh, Tom Fontana hired me to write for the show Homicide, which was based on a book I wrote uh, in Baltimore. He believed that there was a threshold of creativity that was that resulted when you had a bunch of writers in a room talking and arguing the material and, and making scripts better. So I, I walked into a writer's room, mm-hmm. and not only did I have the benefit of writers who had more experience than me, uh, uh, well, everybody had more experience than me. I was a police reporter at the time. But Tom did other things. He sent me to set, to cover set, 
uh, and to protect the script on set. He sent me to casting. He sent me, you know, when I was ready, he sent me into editing. Those things made me conscious of what you need to do to write competently and, and, and even, you know, write in an advanced way for television. Inviting young people into a writer's room with more experienced writers, bringing people onto set, those sound like good actions for a mentor to take with a mentee. Should they be written into a contract? Absolutely. If something doesn't require a certain number of writers to get the job done, why should a studio be required to hire well, that number well, of writers? Well, they never did. Rec- it was never written into the contract because it was always assumed that this was um, a viable form. Why has that changed? Uh, it's changed because of greed. Um, I mean, you, you now have Wall Street analysts and, and CEOs who are basically saying, if we can make television for cheaper... Let's try. Well, um, the other but, way of describing that would be if a show requires five people, why should we be required to have 10? Nobody's saying you should have 10. They're now saying that, that uh, they sh- there should be no fundamental uh, uh, standard for any. Um, and and show, showrunners, people who are doing the job of producing and running the show, have been left alone on set and in post-production. Can you give me another example or two of something that was standard when you began that today is no longer the case that you of think course. makes beginning writers of at course a i can entice somebody who is a good writer who knows how to, to write dialogue and, and 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 move pages and 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 can write from a television show that is complex and sophisticated and you know can can sustain itself narratively over 12 episodes if i can offer them some decent employment but if a studio comes to me and says, look, we're just going to have a mini room, you know. People might not be familiar with the term mini room. Explain a that. A pre-production yeah. room that might go six or eight or ten weeks or maybe only three weeks. And they say, give us all your ideas. And, oh, by the way, then go off on your own and write a script. Or they might not even say write a script because there's money in the script fee, too. They might say, thanks for your ideas. We're not hiring you. But thanks for participating in our room. Go with God. Nobody who wants to make a living writing television is going to be able to be sustained that way. You can't live on three weeks' salary. That's what's happening now. When I came on on Homicide, uh, a network show that had 22 episodes, I, I had 30 weeks of employment. I can live on that. I can have a career. I can actually seriously consider writing television for a living. I offer, I offer what's available on these shorter-run shows now to writers. I can't sustain them. So you're arguing writers should be paid by the time commitment rather than by the episode? good news. It's called term employment. And that is what this strike is about. It's saying, look, hire people for a certain amount of time to do the work and have them there on set and afterwards in editing when writing is happening. Some of the most fundamental decisions about writing are in editing or in reconceptualizing a scene because you've lost a location or because an actor uh, is struggling with a line. That's writer's work. And we do it on set. It's why television Got, it was able to get to the place of sophistication that it did. Let's talk about residuals. Sure. You get checks from The Wire, which started production more than 20 years ago. And if that show debuted today on a streaming service, how would the checks that you get look different? They'd be tiny. They'd be tiny. Um, the, the, the amount of streaming residuals that we've gotten as compared to broadcast it is relatively minimal, and we have to fight our way to a better and more plausible formula with, with the studios. And we had to do that with cable when it first arrived. And we have to do that with every technology. Every time a new technology comes in, the greed uh, says, oh, you know, we don't know how much you're, we're going to make with this. We don't know whether it's actually viable. This is what they said to us in, in the last strike in 2007. They said, we don't know about this streaming thing. We don't know if this is the future. We're not sure. 
give us three more years or six years. Well, we'll, well, we we agree to talk about it. That's literally what they said. And we said, no, the future is now. And we went on strike. Um, we, we got our foot in the door. And that's why we have some measure of address over, over uh, uh, streaming residuals. But we need more. We need the formulas to become plausible and, and compensate us for the fact that this is now the delivery system for a lot of the content. Okay. So you've spent your career creating television without AI. And mm-hmm. I could imagine today you thinking, boy, I wish I had had that tool to solve those thorny problems. What? Or saying, you imagine boy, that? if that had existed, it would have screwed me over. I don't think I don't think AI can remotely challenge um, what writers do at, at, at a fundamentally creative level. But if you're trying to transition from scene five to scene six, and you're stuck with that transition, you could imagine plugging that portion of the script into an AI and say, give me 10 ideas for how to I'd rather put a gun in my mouth. You would rather put a gun in your mouth. I mean, what you're saying to me effectively is there's no original way to do anything. And, no, and go, that yes, seems like are. a kind of absolutist take. Not, not, not only I think is it a fundamental violation of the integrity of writers and also of copyright. To, you know, when I sold all the scripts I sold, uh, you know, 150 to HBO and, you know, maybe another 50 to NBC... I didn't sell them so that they could be thrown into a computer with other people's and be used again by a corporation. So would so, you ever agree to a contract that saw any role for AI at all? No, I would not. Huh. If that's where this industry is going, it's going to infantilize itself. We're all going to be watching stuff we've watched before, only worse. Do you think that position is where this is likely to end up? I mean, if a writer wants to play around with AI as the writer and, and see if it helps him, I mean, I regard it as no different than him having a thesaurus or a a dictionary on his desk or or a book of quotable quotes. Play around with it. If it starts to lead the way in the sense that a studio exec comes to you and says, AI gave us this story that we want, that's not why I got into storytelling. And it's not where I'll stay if that's what storytelling is. You've been through past writer's strikes. Were there lessons those experiences taught you that you think are relevant today? Oh, yeah. Um, the one that the one that is fundamental today is they are now telling us we don't know what AI is we don't know how it's good it's going to be let's not litigate uh, what AI can do what it can't do you think let's... they're hiding their cards of course they did the same thing in 2007 when it was streaming and so yeah this is this we're having the same exact fight as in 2007 technology is different but the fight has to be the same it's going to be a long fight I think I think this this is going to go on a while this is the fight this is now this has to happen now. David Simon is a TV writer and showrunner known for The Wire, Homicide, Treme, and more. He's also a member of the Writers Guild of America's Negotiating Committee. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Oh, thank you for having me. And next week, we'll hear the view from the studio's perspective. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. Windy out there and still bright and dry. Partly cloudy skies overnight, though. Temperatures falling to the mid-50s. Keep the umbrella around tomorrow. Should be Wet in the afternoon especially, thunderstorms, temperatures in the mid-60s, and then for Sunday, sunny skies, highs in the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, 
offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions. bc.edu slash msae. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Marty Stewart believes country music can be a road into the heart of America. The road is my office. A nice way to live a musical life is to report on what you see. That's a troubadour's job. The Country Music Hall of Famer sings in the spirit of classic country and talks about his new album, That Conversation, plus all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden will meet with leaders of the Quad Alliance at the G7 in Japan. NPR's Franco Ordonez says the meeting was rescheduled after Biden canceled the second half of his overseas trip. President Biden will meet with the leaders of the alliance, which includes Japan, India, and Australia, tomorrow on the sidelines of the Group of Seven Summit in Hiroshima, Japan. This will be the third time the four leaders meet in person during Biden's presidency. The alliance was formed in part to counter Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific region. The leaders had planned to get together next week in Sydney, but that meeting was moved after Biden canceled the second leg of his trip to Australia and Papua New Guinea, which would have been the first ever visit from a sitting U.S. president to the small Pacific Island nation. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Minnesota is the latest state to enact a red flag law as part of a slate of gun safety measures from Minnesota Public Radio. Dana Ferguson has more. At a packed signing ceremony at the state capitol, Governor Tim Walz signed into law a sweeping public safety bill that includes so-called red flag provisions and universal background checks to obtain a firearm in the state. I understand our rights as Americans to do these things, but I refuse to allow extremists to define what responsible gun ownership looks like and to make this about the Second Amendment. This is not about the Second Amendment. This is about the safety of our children and our communities. Gun rights groups in the state mounted strong opposition campaigns against the bills. For NPR News, I'm Dana Ferguson in St. Paul. Football Hall of Famer and social activist Jim Brown died at his home here in Los Angeles last night. He was 87. He broke records during his relatively short NFL career, leading the Cleveland Browns to their only championship back in 1964. Brown retired and pursued acting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge is ordering the Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen accused of leaking top-secret government documents held without bail. Jack Teixeira is awaiting trial on charges under the Espionage Act. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more from today's hearing at federal court in Worcester. Magistrate Judge David Hennessy said he has concerns about whether 21-year-old Teixeira would follow any of the conditions placed on him if he was released on bail. He quoted back Teixeira's own words to him. In online chats, another user asked Teixeira if he was worried about sharing classified information online. Teixeira allegedly replied, IDGAF, profane lingo for not caring. The judge says it was that attitude that makes him worry Teixeira could collude with a foreign government to share more classified information. After the decision, Teixeira looked back at his family and appeared to be near tears as he was re-handcuffed and led out of the courtroom. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Food benefits are being extended for Massachusetts K-12 students who are eligible for a free or reduced school lunch. 
The state said today it's received federal approval to continue the program until the end of July. It was supposed to end this month. The state's Health and Human Services Secretary says the benefits are twofold. They promote food security for nearly 500,000 students and their families, and they also support local grocery stores, farmers, and their employees. Boston is kicking off Immigrant Heritage Month this hour with a reception to honor immigrants' contributions to the city. The mayor's Office for Immigrant Advancement will hand out awards for business, community, and civic leadership. There will also be music and dance performances. The initiative, called We Are Boston, raises grant money for causes that affect immigrants in the city, among them mental health and community building. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. Just announced, don't miss artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston. Season ticket packages available now. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In the forecast, look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-50s. For tomorrow, could have showers and thunderstorms, especially in the afternoon, warming to the mid-60s. Sunday could start up with some clouds, but then a mainly sunny day, warmer too, up in the mid-70s. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Talks aimed at lifting the federal debt ceiling have stalled, at least temporarily. And that means fresh tension for everyone who's counting on a government payment sometime in the coming weeks. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that unless the borrowing limit is increased, the government could run short of cash to pay its bills as early as June 1st. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on what that would look like. Among the government's bills coming due June 1st are $12 billion in veterans' benefits. If there's not enough money to pay those benefits, Marine Corps veteran Cole Lyle says people who've already sacrificed a lot for their country will be forced to sacrifice even more. These are people on very low, sometimes fixed incomes that rely on these payments as a lifeline to pay for housing, to pay for food, to pay for expenses for children and other family members. So it could be potentially very crippling. Lyle, who runs a veterans advocacy group called Mission Roll Call, says if benefits are delayed for any length of time, people who are counting on government payments might have to turn to credit cards with increasingly costly interest rates. There is no good that comes from a default, either to veterans, to active duty service members, or other Americans that rely on benefits from the United States government. That includes seniors. $25 billion in Social Security benefits are set to be paid on June 2nd. Retirees Marilyn and Keith Ayers worry about what happens if that money's not there. If that goes through, that will really be catastrophe. (laughs) We'd be in trouble. We have too many bills. 
The Douglas County, Colorado couple, who are in their 80s, don't have pensions to fall back on. They count on Social Security to help pay their mortgage and buy groceries. We're ordinary American families, and, and I feel anger because we're being held hostage to a type of blackmail that's going on right now. We're not the ones that are out on the streets, you know, with the signs or anything like that. But we vote. Unless there's an agreement, other government payments could also be delayed. A billion dollars in tax refunds, set to go out June 7th. Four billion dollars in federal salaries, payable on June 9th. Medicare providers, defense contractors, food stamp recipients could all be left empty-handed. And then there are the indirect effects of a default. Senior economist Jeff Tucker, who's with the real estate website Zillow, says U.S. government debt is the bedrock of the financial system. If lenders start to worry about cracks in that bedrock, it would send tremors throughout the economy, making other kinds of credit more expensive. That sort of butterfly effect or that, that kind of earthquake of uncertainty and risk emanating out from U.S. government debt would affect the mortgage market as well. Tucker estimates a prolonged default could send mortgage rates soaring above 8%, weakening the already fragile housing market. This scenario would be like a one-two punch hitting home buyers who are already reeling from the affordability challenges this year in the market. Higher interest rates would put homes out of reach for hundreds of thousands of buyers. Eventually, Tucker thinks mortgage rates would settle down again, but he admits there's no guarantee. If the U.S. government, long thought to be the world's safest borrower, proves to be less than reliable, lenders might insist on charging permanently higher rates for everyone. We don't really know for sure, and I think, frankly, that's all the more reason not to find out. Veterans advocate Cole Lyle says this is what ordinary people find so frustrating about the gamesmanship playing out in Washington. We can debate spending levels all day long, and personally, I think the, the federal government does spend too much money. But the deadline is coming, and it threatens to affect personal lives in a very real, real way. What I'm hearing from veterans is just be the adults, get into a room, and do your jobs that we elected you to do. The clock is ticking. June 1st is less than two weeks away. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The debate over how to cover former President Donald Trump has roiled CNN after the network's town hall with him last week. Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? And broader behind-the-scenes dissent over the direction of the network has broken into public view. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick reports. One of CNN's marquee names blasted the network's judgment two days ago in a notable setting. This year marks my 40th year at CNN. Christian Amanpour, the CNN anchor and international correspondent, was the featured speaker at Wednesday's commencement at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. I want to do what's right and empathize with and acknowledge all those who need to trust us at CNN, the most trusted name in news. I understand that the town hall a week ago was for many an earthquake. The Trump town hall was live. He basked in the warmth of a sympathetic audience and steamrolled CNN host Caitlin Collins, despite her often tough approach. I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to That's answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to You are a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> Amanpour said the event structure was fatally flawed. Time could very well prove that Trump's electroshock therapy to the world jolts the undecided into greater awareness. For me, of course, the fact that the American people voted three times against Trump and Trumpism, 2018, 2020, 2022, also speaks volumes. 
We've done our duty. We have told the story. What Amanpour said at Columbia bolsters an earlier critical analysis from CNN's own media reporter and what some other journalists in the CNN newsroom have said privately. CNN chairman Chris Licht came out of the box early last year with a mission and a vision to correct the course. He wanted to strip the network of the perception it was biased against conservatives and Republicans. Licht declined comment. On his CNN show, Anderson Cooper defended the town hall. You have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away? The head of CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, told Wall Street investors yesterday that CNN was shedding its reputation as left-leaning. All the leadership at CNN is working hard and Republicans are back on the air. The Republicans weren't on the air. David Zaslov says Republicans were only on Fox News, where he says they were preaching to the converted. As I've said to a number of them, and Chris has said to them, they're not going to get one more vote on Fox News. They already got that. CNN should be the place that people come for the best version of the truth and for journalism. And that will help the bottom line, Zaslov told investors at the Moffat Nathanson media conference. Chris is rebuilding the network. Uh, it's going to take some time, but advertisers are interested in CNN again. They don't want to be part of an advocacy network. We've had meeting after meeting, and they say, we're with you. America needs this, and our aim is true. Even so, below the surface, CNN is struggling. The network's new vision has not yet coalesced into a new schedule. And while ratings spiked for a night on the Trump town hall, they collapsed after. Twice in recent days, conservative upstart channel Newsmax has beaten CNN in primetime. News professionals are wrestling with the question, is journalism up to the task of covering a third Trump bid for the White House? Staffers say that question resounds particularly loudly inside CNN. David Folkenflik, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. As the frequency of mass shootings accelerates in the U.S., local school boards are facing questions from parents about how they will keep their children safe. That's especially true right now in Louisville, Kentucky, amid escalating community violence and more students bringing guns to class. District leaders there are considering a pricey new gun-sensing technology to keep firearms out. But as Jess Clark with Louisville Public Media reports, some security experts have concerns. In the lobby of Butler Traditional High School in Louisville, Kentucky, Chase Connolly tucks a model firearm into his waistband and walks between two gray posts on either side of the door. If I'm walking through with our test piece here, what will happen is the system will light up red get an audible alert that actually takes my picture. Connolly is with a company called Evolve. He's trying to show off their AI weapons detection system. They want to sell it to Jefferson County Public Schools. Connolly says this technology is different than traditional metal detectors. It looks for a specific type of metal used to make firearms. That means students can walk through with other metal objects like phones, keys, and change without setting off the alarm. We want people to be unperturbed as they move through this 
They're moving at the pace of life. That's Evolve's tagline, moving at the pace of life. Tammy Bradshaw-Cook is watching the demo closely. She's in charge of security at another high school and sees weapons detection as a helpful tool. I'm here and I'm doing everything I can, but we still don't, you know, something could still come in this building. We have no way to stop it. So far this year, staff in this public school district have confiscated 26 guns from students in its 50 middle and high schools. District officials say they want to do something, but many are hesitant to bring in traditional metal detectors over concerns kids' belongings would be constantly searched. Middle school principal Crystal Lanier says this technology seems to thread that needle. Schools are not a place to criminalize children. So this is a deterrent, and that, I think, will keep us very safe. But Evolve is also 24 times more expensive than traditional metal detectors. To put the system in all middle and high schools, the district estimates it will cost $17 million over five years. And some security experts say that's a huge price to pay to a company that hasn't been transparent. The way Evolve has presented its technology to the public misrepresents the capabilities. Donald May is with IPVM, a firm that does independent testing of security technology. May says Evolve won't let his firm test their tech, which is rare. He also found that a review Evolve promoted as fully independent was actually paid for by the company and edited by executives. Evolve says it limits third-party testing because bad actors could exploit any gaps that are exposed. In addition to May's concerns about transparency, he also notes that contrary to the company's promise of a seamless walkthrough, the system frequently goes off on harmless items that contain the same metal used in firearms. Objects found in schools such as Chromebooks, umbrellas, water bottles, binders, are often confused with weapons. Meanwhile, there are reports of real weapons slipping through Evolve detectors in at least two districts, including a knife and two handguns. While school officials in Louisville weigh the pros and cons, Evolve is rapidly expanding. The company says its system is already in 400 schools nationwide. For NPR News, I'm Jess Clark in Louisville. Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins, has officially resigned from her post this afternoon against the backdrop of federal investigations. And coming up next on WBUR, we'll remember one of pro football's greatest players. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. Coming to City Space Monday, June 5th, New York Times cooking writer Hetty McKinnon to talk about her new cookbook, Tender Heart, and Ode to Vegetables and to Family. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. A beautiful evening, partly cloudy overnight tonight, falling to the mid-50s. Could have showers and thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon, warming to the mid-60s. Then for Sunday, sunny, beautiful temperatures in the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include Davis Mom, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at davismom.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden was skeptical of the new rules forcing airlines to treat people better. I travel a ton being a stand-up comic, and um, I have platinum status with the airlines, and they treat me horribly. I don't know what they're doing <laughs> to Group 5. I'm Peter Sagal. Your first-class ticket to this week's Wait, Wait comes with a gourmet meal, assuming you're a gourmet cook. Join us for a staycation with the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. An NFL legend is dead. Hall of Famer player Jim Brown died Thursday at his home in Los Angeles. He was 87. In his nine seasons playing for the Cleveland Browns in the 1950s and 60s, Brown established himself as one of the all-time great running backs. But football merely was the start of a life filled with accomplishment and controversy. Tom Goldman has this remembrance. Jim Brown called it the most beautiful game he ever played, a blend of speed, quickness, intelligence. His abilities landed him in the Hall of Fame, the first black player inducted. For lacrosse, it seemed incongruous compared to his defining and violent sport of football, but it was a testament to his superb athleticism. Brown played four sports at Syracuse University. Football stuck. He told the NFL Network in 2000 he loved how the game was a constant test. In every way, stamina-wise, mentally, courage, it pushes you to the brink. And you can either deal with it or you can't. You know? Jim Brown dealt with it, perhaps better than any running back in the game's history. There are defensive men in the league who have dedicated themselves, their souls and their bodies to a holy war against Jimmy Brown. None of them has yet won the crusade. He gets four yards and makes it second and six at the 35-yard line. This Jimmy Brown just sticks his head down and powers straight forward. With his chiseled six foot two, 230 pound body, Brown sneered at the idea of running out of bounds on a play. But his rare combination of power and speed and quickness meant he didn't only run through tacklers, he zipped around them and away from them, evidenced by the long touchdown runs that fill his highlight reel. Rushing for 100 yards in a game still is a gold standard for running backs. Brown averaged more than 100 yards for each regular season game of his his career. He's the only one to do that in NFL history, and he never missed a game in his nine years in the league. The perfect running back? No. He didn't like to block, but he did like to think his way through a game. After being tackled, Brown always would get up slowly, so defenders never knew, was he hurt or not? A little bit of playing possum. William Roden was a New York Times sports columnist for more than 30 years. This is it. He's had it. And he, you know, slow to get up. And then on the next play, we just totally vanquished the defense. Long before he wrote about Jim Brown, Roden loved watching him play and the way Brown left the game for good. It was the summer of 1966. Brown was 30, still in his playing prime. The previous year, he'd won yet another league MVP award. He was also an aspiring movie actor. That summer, he was in England shooting the World War II film The Dirty Dozen. That's your war, man, not mine. You don't like the Grotz Major, you fight them. Me, I'll pick my own enemies. When production was delayed, it meant Brown would be late to training camp. Cleveland owner Art Modell decided to get tough with his star and said Brown would be fined for days he missed. So, Brown got tough back. 
he retired. Roden, who's African-American, loved the defiant message Brown sent to his team's owner. You're going to try to do that to me, uh, this proud black man, screw you. And that, to me, is when his legend began to grow. A year after his sudden retirement, Brown organized the Cleveland Summit. Nine top Negro athletes meet with Cassius Clay to discuss his anti-draft stand. They include Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, and former pro footballer Jimmy Brown. Heavyweight boxing champ Clay, who changed his name to Muhammad Ali, faced charges for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. The athletes gathered in Cleveland, debated Ali's stance, and ultimately came together in support. The summit was considered a key moment in the history of athlete activism. And Brown would be a big part of that activism the rest of his life. But he took a different tack. He didn't believe in the power of marching and protest. In a 2010 interview, Brown said he admired civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., but disagreed with King's strategy of passive resistance. I thought economic development and a sense of cultural power would be a better way to fight because capitalism in America was riding high. In 1988, Brown started a foundation called Amer I Can. Its mission was to stop gang violence in Southern California, his home, and in the process, give troubled young black people tools to reach the goals of economic development and cultural power. Brown's house became the scene of peaceful gang meetings between the notorious Crips and Bloods. Akilah Sherrills went to some of the meetings. He was one of many who embraced Brown's Amer I Can message. Jim had to program American. He laid out to us what the concept was, and immediately we kind of reacted to it because we considered ourselves black nationalists. So he was like, American. We was like, American? We ain't Americans, man. We Africans. He said, I tell you what. He said, you give me an opportunity to show you a different way of going about doing business, a different way about living your life, and I promise you, you will never have to worry about, you know, sustaining yourself economically, taking care of your families, and taking care of your community for the rest of your life. There was, in Jim Brown's life, a troubling irony. He effectively preached to others about empowerment and personal responsibility, but Brown appeared to ignore those ideals in multiple abusive relationships with women. Police arrested the 63-year-old legendary Cleveland Brown star at his Hollywood home for allegedly threatening to kill Monique and smashing her car windows with a shovel. Between 1965 and 2000, Jim Brown was accused, tried, and even jailed once for multiple incidents of sexual and physical assault. Through the years, he would blame the incidents on inaccurate media accounts. A lot has to do with things I've done. A lot has to do with things I've been accused of. But most of it has to do of the reporting of those things. But in his memoir, Out of Bounds, Brown admitted he'd slapped women and, quote, I never should have. I don't start fights, but sometimes I don't walk away from them. For Roden, this flawed part of Jim Brown's history was another lesson learned. Admire the political stuff. Admire his work with gangs. But also realize you had to hold him accountable for this other part. A 2006 book about Jim Brown was titled The Fierce Life of an American Hero. Taking the full measure of Brown leaves one nodding at a fierce life, fierce and often triumphant and meaningful. But the hero part? Perhaps not. Tom Goldman, NPR News.
All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is WBUR. should be partly cloudy tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. First half of the weekend should be kind of crummy, unless you like being rained on. Showers and thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon. Highs about 66. On Sunday, mostly sunny skies, moving up to the mid-70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Massachusetts' highest-ranking law enforcement official has officially resigned after federal investigators accused her of abusing her authority. U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins sent a letter to President Biden. She said it was an honor to receive his nomination and thanked him for his support. Our story is coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Arab League Summit is featuring a surprise attendance of Ukraine's president and the Syrian president's first appearance there in over a decade. To avoid a default on the U.S. debt, President Biden has signaled he's considering changes to some federal safety net programs. Some Democrats are not pleased. Make no mistake, what they are proposing would adversely impact the most vulnerable people in this country. More on the talks to avoid a default coming up. Also, Bedouin music to muse by Temple of Dreams. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Leaders of the G7 industrialized nations have recommitted to supporting Ukraine and its resistance against Russia's invasion. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Hiroshima. Ukrainian President Zelensky is expected to attend the summit over the weekend. In a statement, the G7 leaders said their support for Ukraine would not waver, nor would their efforts to minimize the impact of Russia's illegal actions on the rest of the world. They also pledged to ramp up sanctions on Russia and their enforcement. The statement ended by noting that the pledge was made 
in Hiroshima, a symbol of peace. G7 leaders began the summit by visiting a memorial commemorating the U.S.'s atomic bombing of Hiroshima in 1945. Keiko Ogura, an 85-year-old bombing survivor, or hibaksha in Japanese, told the leaders that humanity must never again experience a nuclear disaster. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Hiroshima, Japan. The Republican presidential field for 2024 just got another member today, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina filing paperwork to begin his candidacy. NPR's Don Gagne has more. Tim Scott says he's running as a conservative with an optimistic, positive message. The only black Republican in the United States Senate, he has a campaign kickoff rally scheduled for Monday in his hometown of North Charleston. Senator Scott is not the only South Carolinian in the race. Former governor and U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is also running. Both are very popular in the state, but both still trail former President Donald Trump by a wide margin in statewide polling. In national polls, Scott is in the low single digits. The Trump campaign quickly greeted his announcement with an email blasting him as soft on immigration and too eager to spend money supporting Ukraine. Don Gagne, NPR News. The longtime CEO of Morgan Stanley says he plans to step down in the next 12 months. James Gorman broke the news about his departure at a shareholders meeting. As NPR's David Gurr reports, Gorman plans to become the company's executive chairman. Among the man and the one woman who run the big banks, there hasn't been much turnover recently. James Gorman has led Morgan Stanley for more than a decade. He became its chief executive in 2010. Well, since then, the firm has grown. Its market cap is now around $140 billion, and it acquired E-Trade and Eaton Vance. Before Gorman became Morgan Stanley's CEO, he oversaw its wealth management division, which has become a larger part of the overall business, and that's helped the firm weather a recent downturn in investment banking. Gorman says the bank's board is looking closely at three internal candidates for the top job. David Gura, NPR News, New York. American Airlines says it's reached a tentative contract agreement with its pilots. American, the nation's biggest airline, said today the four-year deal would give pilots pay and profit sharing that matches the top of the industry. On Wall Street, the Dow fell 109 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins has made it official that today was her last day on the job. She submitted her resignation to the White House in the last half hour. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker. Rollins' resignation letter is brief. In it, she thanks President Biden for nominating her to the post and for supporting her contentious confirmation process. Her resignation comes after two federal investigative reports released this week cited Rollins for multiple ethics violations. Those included allegedly lying about leaking sensitive Justice Department information to try to influence last year's election for Suffolk County District Attorney. Investigators also found that she attended a Democrat fundraiser despite being told not to go. Rollins' first assistant, Joshua Levy, will lead the office's acting U.S. attorney. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A federal judge says a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified military documents online will remain in custody pending his trial. 
The ruling came this afternoon in federal court in Worcester. Prosecutors argued Jack Teixeira was a flight risk. They also claimed he may have additional classified documents, more than what he's accused of already having posted. His lawyers wanted the 21-year-old released to his father. Somerville residents have until the end of tomorrow to contribute to the city's first-ever participatory budgeting process. Mayor Katiana Ballantyne is asking residents 12 years old and up for ideas on how to invest $1 billion in city improvement projects. Ideas that are not eligible for consideration include staff hiring and any proposal that requires recurring expenses or that targets specific vendors. Suggestions can be submitted online, over the phone, or in person. Boston Celtics will try to rebound tonight in Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals. They again take on the Miami Heat at the Garden after the Celts dropped Game 1 Wednesday night in Boston. Here's WBR's Fausto Menard. The Celtics want to win tonight to avoid going down 2-0 in the seven-game series. That's especially important since the next two games will be in Miami. Boston blew a nine-point halftime advantage Wednesday night before losing by seven. Celtics star Jason Tatum did not even take a shot in the final quarter of that game. The C should be at full strength tonight, with no players expected to miss action due to injury or illness. Miami will once again be without two of their starters, who've both been out of action since last month. Tip-off tonight is scheduled for 8.30. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. A beautiful evening. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, falling to the mid-50s. Could have showers and thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon, warming to the mid-60s once again. Then Sunday may start up with some clouds, but then brighten for a mostly sunny day on Sunday. Warmer, too. Temperatures in the mid-70s. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Saudi Arabia flexed some serious diplomatic muscle today. It invited Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose country is at war with Russia, and Syria's President Bashar al-Assad, whose government is propped up by Russia, to join a meeting of regional Arab leaders. We're joined now by NPR international correspondent Aya Batrawi, who is in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. That's where the Arab League summit took place. Hey, Aya. Hi. So let's start with Zelensky. We saw that, you know, the U.S. and other countries today ramped up sanctions against Russia. What do you think Zelensky is trying to achieve by traveling to Saudi Arabia now and speaking with Arab leaders? Well, Elsa, when he spoke to Arab leaders today, he knew that his audience is made up of countries that maintain ties with Russia, either economically or militarily, and none of them have sanctioned Russia. So he had some pointed words for them. Even if there are people here at the summit who have a different view on the war, on on our land, calling it a conflict, I'm sure that we can all be united in saving people from the cages of Russian prisons. Unfortunately, there are some in the world and here among you who turn a blind eye to those cages and illegal annexations. So what's that turning away look like? Mm -hmm. Well, there's Saudi Arabia, the host, which has an oil pact with Russia that's helped both of their economies. There's Egypt, which has longstanding military ties that go all the way back to the days of the Soviet Union. And there's the United Arab Emirates, which has benefited enormously from Russians who have been flocking to Dubai with their money and their wealth to avoid sanctions back home. 
Well, let's turn to Syria. I mean, why did the Arab League states even allow Syria back into the group now? It's not like Assad has made any real political concessions, right? No, he hasn't. And that's why the U.S. has publicly criticized any steps that legitimize the regime. And this is a regime that gassed, bombed, and tortured hundreds of thousands of people over the course of the civil war. So not all countries are rushing to rebuild ties with Syria. But for countries like the United Arab Emirates, which has been rebuilding Syria after February's earthquakes and 12 years of civil war, Having a weak and fractured country the size of Syria poses a danger to everyone. The country's become a narco state, smuggling huge quantities of drugs into Arab Gulf countries. Meanwhile, there are millions of Syrian refugees across the region and a generation of young Syrians that have only ever known war. So there's a real pragmatic desire to see Syria get back on its feet again. Well, what about Saudi Arabia and all of this? Like, what is it trying to get out of hosting both of these leaders, Zelensky and Assad, at the same summit? So to answer that, I spoke with Mohammed al-Yahya in Jeddah today. He's a Saudi scholar and a senior fellow at the Harvard Belfer Center. And he says there's a feeling in the Middle East that the U.S. is pulling away and does not have a clear strategy in the region, whether that's in Sudan or in Iran. And so he says Arab states are filling that void by looking at their own interests. There's a tendency uh, in Washington to paint any efforts to look after one's own interests as a pivot away from the United States and towards another uh, actor. Uh, you know, you can call it a balancing act, what happened today, but I don't think that was the point. So I think what he's trying to say is that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is signaling to Washington and Moscow that he can stabilize Syria and support Ukraine. And the underlying message here is that while the U.S. is still the world's superpower, it's not an unrivaled power anymore. That is NPR's Aya Batrawi in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Aya. Thanks, Elsa. Talks between Republican negotiators and a White House team on raising the debt ceiling have been put on pause for now. A White House official says a deal is still possible, but said both sides have to negotiate in good faith and recognize they won't get everything they want because passing a deal will require Democratic support. President Biden previously signaled he's considering some changes to federal safety net programs in talks about a deal to avoid a default on the country's debt. Some Democrats on Capitol Hill are worried, and they're pushing a backup plan to get around having to strike any compromise with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Progressive Democrats are keeping a close eye on closed-door talks between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy's negotiators. I'm watchful. I'm always watchful. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal chairs the Progressive Caucus. Many on the left were alarmed by comments Biden made before departing for his trip to the G7, where he suggested he was entertaining the possibility of toughening requirements for federal safety net programs like food stamps. I voted years ago for the work requirements that exist, but it's possible there could be a few others, but not anything of any consequence. Here's Jayapal. His remarks are a little bit confusing. What I've said in the past is, uh, you know, I understand he voted for work requirements in, in 1996 and some other things in 86 with the crime bill, but uh, we didn't elect the Joe Biden of 1986 and 1996. We elected the Joe Biden of 2020. Florida freshman Maxwell Frost says he wants the president to hold the line. I have trust in the president on this, but I do want to make sure that him and the administration know that we don't want to see any cuts through these essential programs like SNAP. Republicans are pushing provisions targeting adults without dependents who receive federal assistance, saying they have to find work. Speaker McCarthy argues this policy boosts both people looking for jobs and employers. But Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern called the GOP plan immoral and told the Biden White House to reject it. The people that I've talked to in the White House have been reassuring from my point of view. I haven't talked directly to the president about this. 
you know, he's overseas right now. But make no mistake, what they are proposing would adversely impact the most vulnerable people in this country. And he says he'll break with the president if he has to. I can't support a bill that screws poor people, and this would screw poor people. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the president has a record of hammering out bipartisan deals, but he suggested the other person at the negotiating table is the problem. I have confidence and faith in the president in these negotiations, but I do not have faith in Speaker McCarthy and right-wing Republican House members. Markey and other Democrats are pushing for the president to use the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which says the validity of the country's public debt cannot be questioned, and the Treasury can pay its bills, even if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley says it's better to turn to the 14th Amendment than agree to GOP demands. But we're saying to the president, if the bottom line is that the only deal to be had that McCarthy will sign on to is one in which ordinary families are savaged, that is unacceptable. The president says using the 14th Amendment is unprecedented, and it's something he could consider in the future, but that talks are the way to avoid a crisis. Democratic Congressman Richard Neal from Massachusetts says it's important to not jump to any conclusions about where a final debt ceiling bill will end up. Negotiating can be conversational and hoping that you might draw a bite based upon something you've said, which means that conceivably it's not in the final package. So who knows? But I do think that giving the president some latitude here is really important. But with 13 days until the country could default, Democrats are only growing more worried. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. A private mission to the International Space Station is set to take flight this weekend. Four astronauts will spend about a week at the orbiting lab conducting experiments, talking with students back here on Earth, and focusing on art. As WMFE's Brendan Byrne reports, there's a long history of art and space. When John Schaffner found out he was going to space, he wanted part of his mission to focus on children, asking them specifically a simple question. What would it be like? When we live in space, in your mind, as a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old today, what does that look like to you? Schaffner remembers his inspiration, a painting he made almost six decades ago of Jiminy's Ed White, the first American to conduct a spacewalk. I feel like a million dollars. This is the greatest after that flight, Schaffner, as an eight-year-old, helped start a young astronauts club. That early dream was put on hold. He went on to become an investor, pilot, and race car driver. But now at age 67, Schaffner will become an astronaut. He purchased a seat on a SpaceX capsule from Houston-based company Axiom Space. And he'll join former NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson and two Saudi Arabian astronauts. And some of the art created by young students is coming along, too. We're going to show the some of the selected uh, art entries and poetry on the space station during our flight. The contest is the latest in a long history of art in space. Robert Perlman, founder of CollectSpace.com, traces the first piece of orbital art to Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov on a 1965 mission. He carried with him some colored pencils and he sketched the horizon um, and the different colors that he saw during a sunrise and sunset as he circled the Earth. And others soon followed. A sculpture called Cosmic Dancer sent to the Russian station Mir in the early 1990s danced in weightlessness. Shuttle astronaut Nicole Stott brought a set of watercolors when she went to space. To start painting, she'd squirt out some water from a drink bag, which would float around as a tiny ball. 
Well, it was so cool because of microgravity, surface tension behaves a little bit differently, which is why you get that ball of water to begin with. And you could take your brush and just touch it, you know, touch it to the ball of water. And all of a sudden, that whole ball of water was now a ball of water on the end of your brush. Canadian astronaut Chris Hatfield brought the art of music to orbit, packing his acoustic guitar and recording a rendition of David Bowie's Space Oddity. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. For others, it wasn't until they returned to Earth that artistic inspiration would strike. Apollo moonwalker Alan Bean was so taken by what he saw, he picked up a brush and painted those lunar landscapes. Speaking to NPR in 2016 from his home studio in Houston, he reflected on being one of the few artists to visit another world. Someday I hope that that painting right there would be in a museum on the moon. Someday, thousand years from now, there will be art museums on the moon. Maybe one of these paintings will be there. Who knows? For John Schaffner, he hopes focusing his upcoming mission on art will inspire students to think big. It's all about imagination. So we want young people to, in, you know, to take up the vision of themselves and imagine themselves in the role that they really, really seek. So hopefully this is a good kickoff and others will follow. And after his upcoming trip to space, Schaffner says he may dust off his art brushes once more, a half century after his painting, a copy of which he's bringing with him started it all. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in on Marketplace starting in about 10 minutes on WBUR, ESPN plans to offer its content on a standalone streaming service soon. We'll look at how the departure of live sports could affect the ailing cable industry. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Stocks fell on this final trading day of the week. The Dow lost about three-tenths of a percent. S&P fell more than one-tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq dropped nearly a quarter of a percent. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Coming to City Space Wednesday, June 21st, authors Matthew Desmond and Andre Dubus talk about their new books. Both of them focus on poverty in America. Tickets are at wbur.org events. In the forecast, a beautiful evening. Overnight tonight, look for some clear spots. A few clouds are on as well, down in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should give us a much-needed rain, especially in the late afternoon. Tomorrow should stay in the 60s. Then on Sunday, gorgeous. Sunny and dry and milder should reach the mid-70s. 65 degrees now in Boston at 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Rami Abusabi and Tamar Malki are the musical duo Bedouin. For more than a decade, the two of them have been making music together. And now they are out with their first album called Temple of Dreams. (music) 
That is the song Tijuana, off their latest project. Tamara says the group's name is a nod to the nomadic tribes of the Middle East. I'm from Jordan, from Amman, Jordan. I was born there. Rami is from Egypt. He was born in, in the U.S., but that's that's where he's originally from. And in the desert or the land between the two countries is where the Bedouins actually live. And in a way, what we do, traveling, grouping around a fire and playing uh, hypnotic, repetitive music. So, <laughs> so we felt that kind of was a perfect name that could describe what we're about to do. Land of broken dreams. He says their current sound is very much shaped by Middle Eastern music, but it wasn't always that way. Maybe because we grew up around it, it wasn't something that we were very interested in. But for me, for example, I couldn't escape it and it wasn't a choice to listen to it. So I kind of started appreciating it a little bit later. You don't feel any interest or connection to it until you step away from it and you start appreciating the differences or certain elements about it or certain aspects of it. And that's, I think, what happened with us is that after a certain point, musically, we started realizing how we can incorporate everything we listened to growing up and bring it in our own way to the dance floor. And that evolution, that changing relationship or reconnection with Middle Eastern music that you experienced as you got some distance from it, is that an evolution that we can hear in your music over the years? This is Rami. I mean, I would say so, yeah. You can clearly hear the evolution in our music to the point where you might not hear any Middle Eastern influence so much in the more recent songs. But I think what we learned from Middle Eastern music or from these ancient instruments with quarter tones and so on and so forth, there's a lot that still carries through technically, but but maybe stylistically you wouldn't really you know, attribute it to being Middle Eastern. Interesting. Well, can we talk about the most recent music? Like, I want to get into this new album, Temple of Dreams. It's your first album since you've been performing together since, what, 2012, right? Yeah, 2013, 2012, something like that. Yes. And can I just ask, like, why do you think... You both waited, what, almost a a dozen years to make an album together. Ah, this is Tamar. So it's not like we waited. To be honest with you, we always thought that if we're going to make an album, it's not going to be like an album that we want to just go under the radar, never detected, and just, okay, we did an album, you know? We wanted to really do something significant. So that's why we really took our time. And whenever we wrote a song or made a song that we felt this could be for the album, we actually just kept it on the side. And we decided that, you know, whenever we're ready or we feel like it's the moment to put out an album, we're going to do it. Oh, cool. Like saving money under a mattress or something. You're just piling it up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, kind of. Well, as you were suggesting a little earlier, I mean, the music on this album, it's pretty, it's different from your other music in the sense that it's not solely dance music, right? Like, why did you want to go for a different sound on this project in particular? As musicians, we express ourselves, you know, in many different ways. So not every day when you express yourself as a musician does that expression 
end up being something that works for a party or a dance floor or that we can use in our DJ set. But those expressions can often be very powerful or still very important to you. And those are the expressions that end up on the album. It's the best way I can describe it. It's, 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 it's a very honest musical expression, but um, after we had created these specific songs, we'd, we'd like Tamer said, put them on the shelf and waiting for that day when, when, when we have enough for a full album and they would, you know, uh, support each other, the songs, uh, as an album. I would love for you to tell me the story of one particular song on this album where you were writing it, you were making it, and then you were like, oh, but we can't, we can't use it right now. We have to put it on that <laughs> shelf and wait for the album. Is there one song that you were so pent up to release yep. into the universe and you you had to wait? Which one was it? It's an easy one. It's was Wash Away. Yeah. Wash Away was the first song that we wrote and we were like, okay, this has to be part of an album if we ever release it. And that kind of somewhat set the tone for the album in a way, I believe. And also that set the tone for the whole idea that we would like this album to be more of a listening experience rather than, you know, a bunch of club tracks that are seven minutes long each. But what is it about that specific track? I think we hadn't understood what the song was before it was made. And, you know, it actually takes time, but after years of going back and listening to the song, you kind of realize, you know, how special it is, really. And this specific track does show our Middle Eastern influence as well as our western influence maybe that's also why it kind of sums up who we are very well also it was it was one of the first so it's sort of your first baby you know <laughs> yeah. it's your favorite yeah. kid <laughs> you know? I mean, you're kind of setting up my you next know? thought my next question beautifully does it feel like the stakes are higher when you're releasing an album compared to all the other music you've made in the past, because I mean, you're using words like my baby, you know, <laughs> yeah. is it, is it, does it feel kind of vulnerable to be releasing this out into the world right now? Oh yeah. To some level it is like that, you know, it's like you, you work so hard on something and, and it's becomes very special to you. And then you're about to put it out to the world and you have no idea or no clue how, you know, people are going to react to it or, how is it going to feel yeah. out there with people? And it's, I guess that's kind of like a beautiful risk that's part of this art process in a way. Tamar Malki and Rami Absabi of the musical duo Bedouin. Their new album is called Temple of Dreams. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. We enjoyed as well. Thank you very much for having us.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. The Celtics and Miami Heat play tonight at the Garden for Game 2 of their Eastern Conference Finals. The Heat won the first game. Tip-off is at 8.30. And at 9.40 tonight, the Red Sox play the Padres out in San Diego. The highest-ranking law enforcement official in Massachusetts has turned in her resignation today. Rachel Rollins is stepping down after federal investigations have accused her of ethical breaches, including lying about leaking sensitive information. Also, Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira will remain in custody for his alleged improper leaking of top-secret intelligence. Follow the latest developments tonight and tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.30 and Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com.